Greetings and welcome to the second episode of Season 3 of the Ideas Podcast. I'm Daniel Lazar, and I'm proud to be the founder and faculty advisor to the John F. Kennedy School Ideas Club. Ideas was born of the demand that in our time of crises, in our age of anxiety, when democracy is fragile, when intolerance is increasingly tolerated, we must intensify our efforts to create a safe but a challenging space to discuss and to celebrate diversity. The Ideas Podcast provides a forum for Ideas members and our guests to grapple with vexing issues pertaining to our core mission. And one such vexing issue is the rise of anti-Asian sentiment in the Western world. We'll dive into that issue today. And if you care about this issue, we urge you to give a listen to a podcast we admire called Beyond Asian, Stories of the Third Culture, which you can hear on our very own Bear Radio. The third culture is what emerges at the intersection between your culture of origin and the other cultures by which you've been shaped. Beyond Asian is a place for stories of global nomads with Asian roots brought up in diversity. The Beyond Asian team is made up of some really passionate artists from the third culture who feel that shared stories are important. And if you dig ideas and you're interested in the nuances and the complexities of Asian lives, you'll definitely dig Beyond Asian. Check it out on Bear Radio or wherever you get podcasts. Now, I am grateful to be joined by two Ideas moderators on this episode. First, the producer of the Ideas podcast, Bella Winger. Hey, Bella. How's life in Tempelhof? It's good. Glad to be here. And we are glad to have you. And we are also glad to be joined by an Ideas member who makes invaluable contributions to our program and who has really shown a keen interest in addressing anti-Asian sentiment at our school and beyond, Lily Smith. Welcome back to the podcast, Lily Smith. Thank you. I'm grateful to be here. Right on. Okay. And we are joined by the distinguished gentleman from the John F. Kennedy School Science Department, Stephen Lee. Welcome to the podcast, Mr. Lee. Thanks for having me. It is truly a pleasure. And last but not least, an esteemed member of the JFKS class of 2021 with one foot out the door and and one foot here in this podcast, Rhea Michi. Rhea, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. I am excited to have you. And I have to say, while I'm so thrilled that you are soon to be matriculating, I am going to miss you. This is both an exciting moment for me and a kind of sad one. We'll call it bittersweet. Now, Lily... I'm hoping you might be able to set the table for us. Why don't we just start here? Why are we discussing the resurgence of anti-Asian sentiment in the Western world? So we're discussing it because it's not just a surge. This type of anti-Asian sentiment and violence has always been here, and it's been present in both American history and German history. And both countries have histories rooted in anti-Asian violence. 
and racism. And with COVID-19, it's really laid a lot of different racial disparities bare for a lot of the public to see in a way where it may have not been as easy for people um, with intersections of power and privilege to be able to see. And especially with COVID-19, there's been a rise of hate crimes and violence against Asian Americans and Asian Germans. And then with the increased visibilities of these acts of racism and violence, it's really important that specifically we as the Ideas Club, which stands for identity, diversity, empathy, awareness, and service, and especially with the majority of members that are white and have intersecting powers and privileges, that we hold ourselves accountable and we address these issues within our school community and within our community as a whole in Berlin and take actions and actionable steps. Yeah. Thank you for setting the table so expertly. I'd like to ask the panel how you best explain this resurgence in anti-Asian sentiment. I mean, what Lily says is true, right? There has long been anti-Asian sentiment, but there is indeed a resurgence of violence and a resurgence of anti-Asian sentiment. So how do we best explain it, my friends? Rhea? So something that I've seen a lot in the media, but just some, something that I think is just completely true is Trump, his rhetoric, he's a world leader on a global stage calling it the... Chinese virus, the Kung flu, making jokes, but also keeping in mind 74 million people still voted for this man in 2020. They follow him, they listen to him, the world is listening to him. And just that kind of rhetoric really put a target, I think, on Asian Americans' backs. And something that I've heard countless Asian Americans say in the media is just, we aren't the virus. But that kind of rhetoric really shifted the blame onto Asian Americans. So I think that's definitely a huge contributing factor. Rhea, it's certainly the case that when global leaders engage in and perpetrate anti-Asian rhetoric, that the people will follow their leaders. And that does go some way to explaining this rise in anti-Asian sentiment, but it can't be all of it. What other factors might explain this resurgence? I would probably attribute a lot of the rise in anti-Asian sentiment to some scapegoating. People are facing a lot of hard times. It's convenient. It's morally expeditious to, to look for a culprit. And we can point to the rhetoric as, as really inflaming and amplifying this messaging um, against Asian communities. Uh, unfortunately, Asian communities are kind of a convenient target. They're really not super vocal about the animosity or the discrimination that they face, right? So to give you guys an example, this year has been the most vocal my family has ever been about the past year. We rarely share stories of our personal struggles whether it's about our upbringing or whether it's about having to deal with discrimination. So something about the tenor of the systemic sentiment against Asian communities this year alone has really sparked and inspired a lot of 
my family to, to really speak out in ways that they've never done so before. They've had to come out of the woodwork and, and share their stories because, you know, we want to avoid an audience being dragged into this spiral of um, inflamed scapegoating. Now, Mr. Lee, some of our audience is familiar with you, and I'm sure much of our audience is fond of you. But would you be so kind as to briefly describe your ethno-national or racial identity so that you can clarify the picture of how and why your family is undergoing this trauma? So I identify as Korean-American, and this sort of ethno-national sort of title carries with it the caveat that American seems to always come second. And one of the most daunting sort of issues growing up as an Asian American is there almost always seems to appear to be an entitled curiosity to where you came from. So for me, it's almost it's almost backwards to describe myself as Korean American because you can listen to this podcast and you would never assume that the voice is created by an Asian face. When people tend to comment on, you know, where'd you come from? For me, that's a really difficult question to answer because I'm kind of from all over in the U S but first and foremost, I am an American. Both of my parents are, Korean born, and they've legally immigrated uh, into the United States. Rhea, maybe I can seize this moment to ask you if you would be so kind to do the same. Your ethno-national or racial self-description sounds like... Well, I actually couldn't agree more with Mr. Lee about this complexity of identity, and you really just can't tell from my voice here. I was born and adopted out of China by American parents, and I was raised until I was nine in the USA, but now I'm turning 18 this year, and I've lived just as long in Germany as I have in America now. So I'm Chinese, but culturally I've grown up with American and now German parents. And yeah, like Mr. Lee, if anything, I feel very international. I've always had an international sensibility And, you know, I have two homes in two different places, but I was born ethnically to a completely different culture. I think identity evolves and develops with you, but yeah, I'm American, Chinese, and I'd even say European. Yeah, I mean, these questions about identity are by the very nature totally vexing. And just to empathize just a bit, I struggle with this as well, right? As a Jew, though not a practicing one in any notable way, look, I've been told in no uncertain terms and in many ways that that is my race. I've also been told that it's impossible for me to be a Jew and an American. I've I've heard that both explicitly and implicitly. And of course, you know, much has been written about this. Such is the plight of the Jew throughout the ages. And it's surely the case that we're not the only ones who have, like, complicated ethno-national or racial identities. 
But I'm grateful that both of you are willing to at least give the listener a sense of your struggle with, you know, the language around all of this. And I think we all sort of struggle with it in our own ways. I want to ask you to, and I, I hope you don't mind my asking, I would be really humbly grateful if you'd be willing to describe an example or two of a time where you experienced discrimination and stereotyping and kind of like how you reflect on that. Um, oof. nice loaded question. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. Wow. Where to begin? Uh, whew, I, is there, are there a lot of examples? Are there like scores of examples that you could draw from Mr. Well, Lee? it's, it's interesting because it's almost like within a, a realm of, of systemic suspicion that we have to, or I have to, to sort of defend myself. Right. So like, where are you from? No. Right. Where are you? That's not what I meant. Where are you really from? Right. Right. And this is almost like an expectation. <laughs> there are moments where in anticipation for this interaction, I would mess with people. <laughs> I would <laughs> redirect their questioning. I would, I would occasionally lie just to see like, what would their reaction be? Because it's, it's, it's beyond the scope of any direction of conversation that I would want to have with a complete stranger. It's kind of hard to, to sort of categorize and to look at all of these instances and to make like a spectrum of discriminatory uh, sort of encounters. Yeah. I hope you don't mind my bringing it up, but I do recall once that you had shared with me a story of returning to your parents' neighborhood and finding yourself accosted by a neighbor do you, are you willing to, 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 to share that story? Is that something you'd prefer not to share? I like this story. I kind of like this story because we have a dog at home and he's incredibly antisocial. He recently passed away, but he had a really long life. So our dog is incredibly antisocial. He only, he only acknowledges immediate family as his entire world. So trying to you know, socialize this dog to others is, is an impossibility. Like he's incredibly suspicious of our neighbors, children. It doesn't matter. So one summer I come home, so I'm walking the dog up and down the cul-de-sac and the standard operating procedure for my dog, because he hates all of our neighbors or hates other human beings in general is to pee on all of their mailboxes. So <laughs> <laughs> he systemically, he would systemically go from mailbox to mailbox and meticulously like claim all of their mail as his own. And um, so once we made the rounds, uh, I would come back to the house and our neighbors have turned over over the years. So um, living in this neighborhood for 30 years, uh, we are founding residents. So like we moved in when this entire area was farmland and then they built houses <laughs> and then that's when we moved in so as a international teacher i don't really know my neighbors so i had one neighbor come up to me and introduce themselves with who are you <laughs> like where do you live yeah. and 
and to me, this this sort of interrogatory approach was immediately hostile, and uh, I did not engage that that conversation. So it's almost like I have to sort of pick and choose, you know, which interactions are um, worth the time, and which are just like, you know what, I'm sorry, my dog peed on your mailbox, but I don't have time for this. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, yeah. You feel reasonably confident that if you presented as Caucasian, that that question would not have been posed because you would not have been deemed by that person to be a quote unquote other. Right. I think there exists a sentiment, especially in like suburbia, that neighborhoods are their own stereotypical composition. So, so being that we're sort of, <laughs> we've been there for 30 years. Um, it's really hard to, to stake a claim against, you know, that interrogation. So mentally, I would think to myself, like, who are you? <laughs> I mean, you're, you're more new to this neighborhood than I am. So the dynamic under normal circumstances should probably be flipped. Um, but yeah, you get to lay the claim as native, right? Correct. <laughs> native to that suburban soil. Yeah, which is incredibly ironic. Yeah, <laughs> how about that? Rhea, again, if you don't mind my asking, have there been times where you have experienced racial discrimination, stereotyping, prejudices? And if so, could you describe an example or two or three or 12? <laughs> yeah, so... I've definitely been stereotyped and mocked and just disrespected by complete strangers, by adults and children alike. I was on vacation with my family once in Italy, and uh, we were exploring a volcano, and we were going to take the, the kind of like ski lifts, but going down. Yeah, yeah. I forgot the name, I'm sorry. I got you. So yeah, the ski lifts down. And we were just standing in line, and we were having a great time, and uh, this adult couple behind me started like saying you know the classic ching chong those i guess quote-unquote asian sounds that people used to um mock me I, they were standing behind me um but i heard it and i turned around and i saw them and yeah they were just kind of pointing at me and making those sounds at me and those were grown completely grown adults just doing that for no reason i had done nothing I was just standing in line to go down off the volcano. And yeah, it was unfortunate. And my mom was very mad. But yeah, that was one that I have always remembered. Without asking you to go into the details, because it all sounds really painful, actually. Have there been other such instances? Yeah, uh, not with adults that I can really recall. But I... I've definitely been subject to the whole ching chong pointing and um, even at JFK, I walked by some classroom once in elementary school and I heard someone yell konnichiwa in Japanese um, mm. at me. It was completely uncalled for. I, I just walked by the classroom, but they saw me. So definitely has happened throughout my entire life. And I lived in Texas. When I lived in the USA, I lived in Texas, and my sister and I were the only Asians in this tiny town in Texas at our elementary school. So we had 
instances there. Definitely. I'm really sorry, Rhea. I, I wish it weren't so. And I know that my, my empathy and my sympathy, you know, can't heal those wounds. But I, I do want you to know that I'm really sorry that you've had to withstand such indignities. And Mr. Lee, my empathy is with you as well. I, I'm really sorry. Um, so obviously Rhea and Mr. Lee, it's horrible to hear your stories. And I'm, I am truly so sorry that, that that's something you, you've been going through your entire lives and at school too, Rhea and Mr. Lee. Another thing that a lot of Asians have been stereotyped as is sort of being the model minority. What is meant by this and how do you feel about it? Uh, how to approach that question. So, right? <laughs> like, what's interesting about that question, it's a really good question. It's got a nuance. I once read this article about this model minority image and how Asian American students were no longer designating themselves as Asian American on their university applications because they were putting themselves in competition with other Asian Americans. And any of the statistics that you will sort of read into about Asian American communities were very school-centric, <laughs> um, uh, were very family-centered. And if I think about what drove me, my family, my sister, to do incredibly well at school, I think the label is often used in a weaponizing way. Can you talk a little bit about how you think that the model minority trope has been weaponized? I think the model minority tends to be weaponized to compare sort of ethnic groups to one another in a way that is one, it's not appropriate because they're not comparable circumstances. And two, it's just, you're pinning groups against each other that really don't, <laughs> they don't want this confrontation. It, it's not helping the circumstances. <laughs> the utilization of the term is not going to advance a community diversity project, right? It's only going to be used as a cudgel or as a bludgeon to compare groups to one another in a way that's like putting some groups on a pedestal and sort of putting a slight or dig at others. Yes. It's not an appropriate description. I couldn't agree more. And I should say to our dear listeners that we have collected a couple of reflections from students and teachers alike that we're going to append to this episode. And one of our beloved and esteemed colleagues, Mr. Lee, actually speaks quite compellingly about this model minority problem. And she really supports and dovetails with your response. So look forward to hearing that, Mr. Lee. You are not alone, sir. Rhea, have you been subject to this whole model minority trope? Yeah, definitely. I think 
were kind of stereotyped as being very intelligent, non-confrontational, um, the quiet contributors to society. And what I've been seeing a lot, though, is that people have been coming out, Asian Americans, and specifically Asian women I've seen in the media, have been coming out saying that they've always felt invisible, that no one has listened to them, and that they felt that they're supposed to keep quiet and not fight. And yeah, my mom apparently didn't absorb that stereotype. Um, <laughs> she's actually, <laughs> she's always encouraged me and my sister, my twin sister, Lorelai, to never back down. We take Taekwondo um, and to always fight back. But yes, I have definitely been subject to that. One thing, especially just in school, as we said, this happens a lot in school. I've had friends and just anyone kind of attribute um, me getting a high score on a quiz or a test to me being Asian. I did hear that specifically said, kind of behind my back. They said that, oh, she did good because she's Asian. You know, so I have had that happen. Support or reject my hypothesis that this is not an isolated instance of some goofy kid saying something, you know, stupid and misguided. Yeah, definitely not. It's happened to my sister too. Um, And maybe Mr. Lee, I don't know how it was when he was a teenager. Um, yeah, it is definitely not just a special instance. It happens a lot. Mr. Lee? I find that stereotype to be quite pervasive. I think in my case, it's a little bit different from Reyes. Um, and it's a little bit different because I actually had a support group of other Asian Americans going through the same thing. So we normalize this interaction within our within our sort of social groups. And since that sort of diffuses the burden across multiple people, it didn't seem to bother any one of us on an individual level. But when it comes to like Rhea's example, she's living in a predominantly white environment (laughs) where she doesn't necessarily have that social group to shoulder that burden across multiple people. Who can she relate that kind of ethnic stereotypical burden on anyone other than her sister. But yes, I could, I could say that growing up, I had very similar uh, encounters with these stereotypes. So Rhea, Mr. Lee, we could probably draw some kind of Venn diagram about your respective experiences. Of course, this is a podcast for and by the Kennedy School community. And so I can't help but wonder, as we commemorate and celebrate Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, I have to ask, what could the Kennedy School do differently to create more supportive spaces for people with Asian identities or heritages? Oof. (laughs) Um, yeah, that other than telling kids to not be a little racist, right, Rhea? (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, that's a start, right? right? (laughs) Well, that's a good question. I, if I'm honest, JFK students have a robust sort of culture of, of deep learning, they're aggressive learners. I think what amplifies our experiences here is that we're so underrepresented 
I'd be hard pressed to to push single digits of percentages of representation within the student body. The culture of sort of assimilation as a means of sort of escaping um, unwanted or unwarranted attention, the support is warranted. Rhea? I don't think I have a clear answer or solution to that question, but I do have a story that I'd like to share that might help us reflect on what the school could do better. Please. This actually happened to my twin sister. Two years ago, when my sister was in 10th grade, she was at JFK and she was sitting in the high school library and she was just quietly studying, minding her own business. Elementary school students were getting some kind of tour of the high school, but there were elementary school students in the high school library. And what happened was some fourth graders went up to my sister and they did the ching chong thing. They were mocking her. Um, They pulled their eyes back. And then they even told her to go back to China. Yeah. So there was no provocation whatsoever. On her part, we, Lorelai, my sister, didn't even know these children. And yeah, they interrupted her to be disrespectful, to diminish her, to really just bully her in numbers. There were several of them. Or there, yeah, there were several people. It wasn't a single fourth grader. So in response to that, the elementary school principal or the admin in the elementary school, they held a meeting um, involving my sister and one of the girls who was involved. For some reason, I don't know exactly why, the other girl who was involved or the other people, I think it was just another girl who was involved with this, uh, did not attend or couldn't attend for some reason. And what the school did during that um, meeting is that they tried to teach the fourth grader to recognize my sister's quote unquote Americanness. And they tried to say like, Lorelai doesn't speak Chinese. And just because she was born in China, just because she looks the way she does, you can't make assumptions like that. You just can't. Yeah, my family's always been disappointed that while one kid may have gotten something valuable out of that meeting, the whole issue was never really addressed with that other kid that was involved. There was no lesson or apology from the other kid. But, like, the big question really is, how can a fourth grader walk up to a tenth grader she doesn't even know in a school library and feel free to disrespect her like that? You know, where are they learning this disrespect? And what my mom's point in this whole situation was that if these kids learned nothing else at JFK, what they need to learn in school and from their parents is that you never treat people that way. You know, no person, it doesn't matter what ethnicity or race or whatever, you know, it's just basic decency and respect. So I think the most important thing we should have done and that we did was we called it out and we made the school deal with it and kids need to learn that this kind of behavior isn't acceptable and if we don't if the school specifically you know we're talking about these model minority tropes and stereotypes happening in school where kids are so impressionable and vulnerable to what they learn from their parents from teachers if they don't learn these important lessons then they grow into the people that we see today who think it's okay to treat 
Asian Americans, the way they're being treated. You know, there was this big case in New York. It was captured on camera where this 65-year-old Asian lady was walking to church, you know, and this random guy beat her up, kicked her, yelled racial slurs at her, kicked her in the face, in the stomach. And I don't know exactly what it was in front of, but like some hotel or some building and the employees, what they did, they watched and then they closed the door. You know, this kind of respect that we need to have for people is learned. And yeah, I think our school maybe needs to watch out for that. But in this situation, they did address it. But we, my family is still disappointed that it was never addressed with the other child who was equally as guilty and involved in this. But yeah. Yeah. Oy. Clearly, like, one thing that our school needs to do, of course, is if we see something, we have to say something. We have to be, be you know, swift and precise and robust in our responses. And I hope that having conversations like these will encourage all of our listeners and all of the members of our community to have the courage to stand up against this type of bullying and discrimination that you know you and your family have endured and i have to say rea i've known you for 3 years and um i've always been very open about my admiration for you i i enjoy you i just think you're great and i didn't know any of this and I, I have to say that if I knew, I, yeah, I, when I invited you onto the podcast, I, I invited you onto the podcast because I like you. And I, and I was pretty sure that, you know, you'd be thoughtful. I didn't know at all that you and your family have been victims. And so for what it's worth, I, I uh, please accept my apology. I hope that having you on doesn't like force you to like re-experience any of this trauma. I think the important thing is that we get to tell our stories. So thank you all for listening <laughs> to our story. But that's kind of one reason why I really wanted to come on this podcast was to tell it. And let other people know that, you know, you don't know what people are going through or the kind of things they've experienced just because of the way they look, you know? So I have to ask you all, what can we do? What can our listeners do to combat the rising tide of anti-Asian sentiment? Yeah, so there's a lot that our listeners can do. People of all identities, especially people with intersections of power and privilege, such as being white, really have to educate themselves first. And that is an action. And that means following accounts on social media, reading articles, looking at books of different experiences than the ones that they hold about what it is like to be Asian and what kind of discrimination exists and they may not be able to see because of the intersections of their power and their privilege. 
And then following educating yourselves, which is something that everyone should always be doing. One can also take action by empathizing with other people and signing petitions, finding protests or finding Zoom meetings to educate themselves, especially with this topic about anti-Asian sentiment and anti-Asian violence and discrimination. There's a lot of bystander training sessions that are open and available via Zoom to go to. And these are all different actions that our listeners and people in the J and JFKS can all take. And allow me to seize that, Lily, to wholeheartedly thank you for taking the bull by the horns and for creating over the course of the month of May daily actions that our community can take to engage in anti-racist activities and behaviors. Most of our listeners will know that at the beginning of every week in the month of May, you shared with our entire community specific readings and videos and actions and discussions that they could take and partake in. And that was all you. You took that initiative. We've never done it before. And I'm grateful for your willingness to lead in that and to further the marketplace of ideas at the Kennedy School vis-a-vis Asian American and Pacific Islander heritages and cultures. So Thank you, Lily Smith, and it is for that reason that I'm going to allow you to be the first person to help us drive this train into the station by offering an endorsement. And of course, as regular listeners know, all of our guests are given the opportunity at the end of each episode to recommend to our audience something that speaks to the idea's mission. And of course, Ideally, this would be something that our listeners can get their hands on or lay their eyes on in the throes of a pandemic. Lily Smith, what would you like to endorse today? So I would like to recommend everybody listening to follow the work and life of Liz Kleinrock. She has an Instagram account and it's either at Liz Kleinrock, L-I-Z space K-L-E-I-N. R-O-C-K. It's either at Liz Kleinrock or at Teach and Transform, all one word. And she actually really inspired me and her suggestions for daily actions were all included in the kind of daily action email list. She's an educator on anti-bias and anti-racist curriculum. And all of the work that she's doing is just really inspiring. So I would recommend everyone to look and follow the work of Liz Kleinrock. Sweet. I will link to it in the show notes. Bella? So I don't remember the title of the article, but it'll be linked. I was just, I remembered an article I read a few months ago. It was at the beginning of the school year. It was in National Geographic. And I think it really resonated with me. And it was about America's history of scapegoating its Asian citizens or, you know, citizens of Asian descent. Um, And I remember it really resonating with me. So I recommend that others read it too. All right. We'll find it. We'll link to it. Rhea, I'm going to miss you so much. You're so good. What you got? Um, I'd like to endorse a really insightful and just downright interesting podcast. Um, It's called NPR's Code Switch Podcast. It's already a really popular podcast, I think, talking about these hard truths 
is the first step, and this podcast does just that in a very engaging and effective way. So I think everyone should check it out. I love the Code Switch podcast, and we will definitely link to it in the show notes. And last, but certainly not least, the distinguished gentleman from the science department, Mr. Lee, what you got for us? I guess during times of pandemic, I this year has been one of my most charitable years because I haven't been traveling. So a lot of my travel money has been donated to pandemic-friendly causes. So I'm thinking of causes that align with this sort of diversity, awareness, and service. I think I'll shout out a distant relative of mine, Roy Choi. So Roy Choi is um, a food truck chef, but he also owns restaurants in Los Angeles. He's born in, in Korea, and his food is amazing. So he runs the Gogi trucks out in LA. He actually does a lot of community work, like delivering food, to places that are designated like food deserts where grocery stores, they can't open due to the pandemic or, or what have you. So he's been doing quite a lot of groundwork, sort of feeding people in, in rough neighborhoods. And he's done quite a lot of work in underprivileged neighborhoods. So I would recommend checking him out. He's got multiple Instagram accounts. <laughs> um, I wouldn't spend too much time on on them because it's all food and you're going to you're going to gain your share of pandemic pounds um, just looking at it. Uh, <laughs> all right. We will link to Cousin Roy in the show notes. Hey, I want to thank you all. This conversation is in so many ways the embodiment of the types of challenging conversations that the Ideas Club advocates for. And I'm really grateful that you're all willing to be here and to make space and to share stories and to dive into the tough stuff, listening to each other. I'm very grateful for each and every one of you and your participation in this little experiment. Listeners, you can find us at our website, that's sites.google.com, jfksberlin.org slash ideas. We'll link to it in the show notes. We'll link you to our Facebook. We'll link you to our Instagram. If you haven't read our most recent journal, it came out a couple weeks ago, you should check it out. We'll link to that. And we have another journal in the works, and we hope to have another podcast or two coming at in the next couple weeks. Until then, here's what you can do. Subscribe, leave a like, offer a comment, and please, if you respect what we're trying to do here, please share ideas with your people. Bella, Lily, Rhea, Mr. Lee, thank you all for being here. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 See ya. Hi, I'm Julie Kubler. I'm in 11th grade at JFK, and I'll be speaking a little bit about my perspective and experience with Asian American racism. So my dad is German and my mom is Chinese, but to be honest, I feel more German than Chinese because I was born here and I can speak the language much better. I feel less German than other Germans and less Chinese than other Chinese, which is quite confusing, but I feel like I'm fortunate not to experience that much racism at all. For me, there are two types of racism in general, two forms. And the first is just straight up blunt racism. For example, um, when I lived in Canada, 
that's where I grew up, uh, there were kids who weren't allowed to come to my birthday party. Like, there was some parents who didn't want their kids in an Asian household. Don't ask me why. There was also an incident where um, the teacher praised me for getting something right in class, and this girl said, duh, of course, she's right. I mean, she's Chinese, what do you expect? And I feel like that that's one of like the stereotypes of this like model minority, this um, idea that all Chinese are smart or something. And I feel like this is obviously a big problem and it bothers me a lot, but somehow I feel like it's easier to deal with because it's ignorance. Like, I know it's not my fault. I know it's the other person's fault because uh, they're just not educated about it, which makes it um, easier to deal with. The other type is a more subtle and less obvious racism, which I find worse because you can never really tell or detect it. For example, um, once we were at a gas station and the person there wouldn't let me and my mom go until we had paid. So we paid and we went in and afterwards there was a Caucasian woman with her daughter and they could go in without paying and only had to pay once they came out. And this doesn't seem like a very big deal. And my dad couldn't understand why my mom was making such a big fuss about it or why she got so worked up about it. But the thing is that, like, even if it's not racism or xenophobia, you can't. sometimes you can't help thinking maybe this is because of my appearance. And maybe it was unintentional or they just forgot to ask for them to pay first. But I think it's still problematic because I feel like you just think about it more um, and if someone is rude to you you think maybe this is because of my appearance whereas my dad for example if someone's rude to him he'll just think okay this is a rude person so I feel like this is worse because it happens so much more often and you can't tell if it's just xenophobia or if it's rudeness and I feel like not everyone expects this because you gain a lot more sympathy when you talk about like the more blunt racism which is obviously needed and which is good but this second type of racism i feel like also deserves to be talked about more because even if it is unintentional or subconscious it perpetuates the feeling that you don't belong or that you're kind of an outsider um, which is why i think it's like the hardest thing to fix or to combat because it's very difficult to tell My name is Mr. Yoshi. I am a math teacher at JFKS in the high school. Uh, my mother is American, white Caucasian, and she grew up in the United States. And my father is Japanese. And I grew up in Japan pretty much all my life uh, up to high school. And then for the university, I came to the United States and got my engineering degree. After that, I decided I didn't really like engineering that much, and so I decided to get into teaching. Um, so the discussion about discrimination and race when it comes to my experience, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is when I was an engineer and when I first graduated from Cornell University, I was trying to find a job as a construction manager and I was searching for, I would say, six months and I got absolutely no emails, 
no calls, just nothing. And then I was told that employers, they discriminate depending on your name. And on my resume, it had my full name, Shige Mitsu and Yoshi. And I changed that to my middle name, Nathaniel. And so my resume was now Nathaniel Yoshi. And within a month, I got a call from an engineering firm and got that job. You, you could say that it was just a coincidence since I was looking for a job for six months. I don't know. I, just, I can't just brush it off that easily that it was just a coincidence that I changed my name and then suddenly I land a job. So that was kind of eye-opening and a little bit disturbing. Um, another thing also that bothers me that I hear a lot, and it's usually not completely directed at me, it's usually kids are talking to each other, but they tend to make fun of the East Asian languages in general. It's kind of bothering me when somebody is like, oh, oh, you're Japanese, and they just say random jumbles of Asian sounds, kind of mocking especially like the Chinese pronunciation or sounds like ching chong wing or something like something yeah ridiculous like that and that just really bothers me when people do that because not only is it ignorant but it's really making fun of the language and basically the culture of not just one but many cultures and it's totally different if you come up to me and this happens frequently but somebody would come up and say, oh, so you know Japanese, so like she she or ni hao, and you know, that's Chinese. And that doesn't bother me because they're trying to speak to me in an actual language and they just don't know the difference and that's totally fine. I'm not offended by that whatsoever. But random noises, that's not even trying to learn the language or Right, you're just not respecting it in any kind of way, and so that's just something I wish people would just not do. I'm Kai Schroeder, and I haven't been at JFKS for a very long time. I only came this year, so I haven't been discriminated or stereotyped here in any real way, which is good. But before I came here, I lived in Korea for three years, and before that, I lived in uh, near Boston, Massachusetts for four and a half years. And I guess I was sort of stereotyped there, because um, I guess I fit pretty well into the stereotypes. I was pretty decent at math, science. I play the piano, I like sushi. Yeah, I, I didn't really mind. I still don't, I don't really care. And the Asian community there was pretty big, so two of my best friends were Asian. And we often joked around about being Asian, typical Asian life things. We joked around about Asian stereotypes. And we were all cool with it. Some of the jokes were kind of funny. Pretty funny, in my opinion. But, yeah. Um, but... If others were to say those kind of jokes that weren't Asian, um, I personally wouldn't care at all as long as they weren't offensive or mean in any way. But I know I can't speak for others because I do remember there being some 
Asian students that were unhappy about those jokes. So, yeah. Thank you. In response to the question, what do you wish high school students would know about being Asian in the Western world? A member of our community said, quote, the concept of being Asian in the Western world can be perceived as problematic and perhaps a different version of the, where are you really from question. This formulation automatically positions Asians as the other or perpetual foreigner someone who is in opposition to the West. In reality, as an Asian American, I was born in a Western country, raised in a Western country, and I don't consider myself as being foreign to the Western world. While I am proud of and connected to my Asian heritage, I do not see this as a qualifier that makes me somehow non-American. This is a damaging perception that Asian Americans and Asian Europeans must face. The assumption that you don't belong or come from somewhere else originally. So the term model minority first appeared in a New York Times article in 1966 written by a sociologist and it was titled Success Story, Japanese American Style. To put it simply, the myth presents Asian Americans as the embodiment of educational and financial success with respect to immigrant and marginalized communities. This is problematic for two reasons. One, upholding Asian Americans as a success story is used as a wedge to divide and conquer pitting marginalized communities against each other. Think of it this way. Let's say there's two students, student A and student B. One is the model student, student A, while the other struggles for whatever reason, student B, and the teacher goes, wow, look at student A. They do their homework on time, they're behaved, they're engaged in the work. And then the teacher says to student B, why can't you be more like student A? So the problem is twofold, right? Here you have student A who starts to believe that they are inherently good and then you have student B who resents student A for their success. Now, the narrative then switches to their relationship, when instead the issue is really the teacher and the systems in the classroom and the school that implements or that are implemented to give certain students an advantage over the other. So here, the teacher is figurative for the institutionalized inequities that create these gaps between communities. So instead of student A and B questioning those systems, they're too busy distrusting each other. This is apparent in the circulating news regarding anti-Asian hate crimes, where Black people are presented as the primary perpetrators. It's gaslighting. A recent study from the University of Michigan looked at 4,337 news reports of anti-Asian hate crimes, and in 90% of those cases, the perpetrators were white, while only 5% are Black. So here, example of divide and conquer. Uh, the second issue with the model minority myth is treating Asian Americans as a monolith. All Asians are successful and educated, but if you disaggregate the data, you'll find that there are income gaps and opportunity gaps among different ethnic groups. 
while Asian American households do have the highest median income of minority groups, and I think even compared to white families, this category also has the largest income gap. For example, Indian Americans have an average per capita income of $55,000 per year, while Hmong people, who mostly immigrated to America as refugees, have an average per capita income of $19,000. That's a pretty big gap. In college, I worked as a peer counselor to Filipino students because our graduation rates at UCLA were among the lower end in the Asian American Pacific Islander spectrum. Now, a two-minute snapshot is not going to do this issue justice, but I hope that our students can be mindful of the next time they say something along the lines of, oh, that's because they're Asian. Remember the purpose of this myth. It's to divide and conquer and to distract from the systemic problems that should be the greater focus.